Jonathan Glazer's new film, The Zone of Interest, shows us the idyllic life of Rudolf and Hedwig Huss as they raise their children in rural Poland in the early 1940s. They ride horses, walk in the country and enjoy their beautiful garden, which happens to share a wall with the Auschwitz concentration camp. Rudolf is the camp's commandant. As they move about their house and about the gardens, there's this constant ambient clatter of annihilation going on in the background, gunshots, the occasional faint scream, the kind of clanking of machinery. And while we never see the atrocities unfolding over the wall, we hear snatches of what might be taking place right beside the family home. The zone of interest has no big speeches, no close-ups and very little plot. But for the powerful way it reveals the horrors of the Holocaust, Glazer's film has been nominated for five Oscars. Nothing really as avant-garde and sometimes plain abstract as this has got into the best picture race in the 97 years it's been held. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, what makes The Zone of Interest a movie we'll be discussing for decades? I talk to Irish Times chief film critic, Donald Clark. Donald Clark, in your five-star review of Jonathan Glazer's new film, The Zone of Interest, you write that the viewer is dumped into the disconcertingly ordinary world of Rudolf and Hedwig Haas. Can you briefly tell us what is their world? And I suppose what's the film about? Based on a novel by Martin Amis of the same name, the film is set adjacent to Auschwitz, I suppose, rather than in Auschwitz, the zone of interest referred to in the title of the book and the film describes the area around Auschwitz, which is included as part of the complex. Hearst and his wife, Hedwig, are the administrator. He's the administrator, obviously. She is, runs the house next to the camp. And as the action of action unfolds, the action as it unfolds in terms of the atrocities are all happening elsewhere. They're all happening over the wall, beyond it. What we're watching is the playing out of a as you say, typically ordinary bourgeois household in well, in Germany and Poland, obviously, but in, in the German sphere of inf- influence during the Second World War. And you get the sense from the way that they lived their lives that if in a different parallel universe, he could have been an accountant or, you know, the manager of a golf club or something unbelievably mundane somewhere in Dusseldorf. As it happens, things that circumstances have worked out, he ends up administrating one of the greatest genocides of the 20th century. The I don't know if it's a trick, but the, con- the, the con- concept is that you are constantly aware of what's going on without it being thrown in your face, without seeing anything explicit. And that happens largely through the, the sound design, which is extraordinary. As they move about their house, and we'll talk in a minute about how the film was shot, which is also extraordinary. As they move about their house and about the gardens, there's this constant ambient clatter of annihilation going on in the background, gunshots, the occasional faint scream, the kind of clanking of machinery that's happening. And it it sounds, it is facetious to suggest that you get inured to it in the way that they would get inured to it. But there's a kind of tiny microscopic version of that in the film, that the first time you're conscious of these noises in the background, that you're slightly shocked, but after an hour and a half, 
that's kind of fading into the background as well. It's all part of the, uh, as I say, ambient soundscape of the film. As far as the plot goes, there isn't much plot to it. Essentially, the dilemma for the horses at the heart of the film is that they might get sent away from what they see as their dream home. They're, they set up with a swimming pool and they have guests around and they have family around and that becomes a trauma for them and that is resolved towards the end and then the film drifts away and leaves us to contemplate all the things that we didn't see but were able to imagine. I was struck by a line in your view of The Zone of Interest. You said we would be talking about this movie for decades to come, which... Obviously, Donald, I'm delighted you were able to come into the in the studio today to talk about the film. And I suppose explain what you meant by that very particular, uh, maybe unique, I don't know, for you, high praise. I think part of what made me say that is, is where it comes from. Jonathan Glazer is a very interesting and singular director. He has made four films and all have become hugely praised in retrospect, even if they weren't all adored on release. Under the Skin, which came out in 2013, eventually became something more than the cult. Two years ago, there was a poll about 60 professional British critics, and they voted the best British film of the current century. That was his science fiction film with with, uh, Scarlett Johansson wandering about a grim version of Glasgow, in which, for large parts of the time, she was being filmed surreptitiously and going amongst real people, which is a very kind of glazer thing to do. So you live alone? Yes. I'm pretty. I know, gorgeous. I have a place about 30 minutes away. And I don't think people were all that surprised by the time that Under the Skin got that praise, but it certainly didn't open to universal praise. I was actually forgotten, in fact, how the degree of derision that attracted initially until I read an interview with Alberto Barbera, artistic director of the Venice Film Festival, and he remembers it as one of the worst screenings he ever intended. And he remembers having to take Scarlett Johansson off to a corner because she was crying after it all and said, and he said, don't worry in time, the film will be recognised, which indeed it was like less than than 10 years later, four or five years later, got that. And he was right about that, Birth, which came out in 2004, which is this film with Nicole Kidman, a kind of allegory involving when she feels that the soul of her husband or the consciousness of her husband has taken the, the possession of a small boy. I mean, mixed reviews would be justly generous about Birth. It was slammed. Um, it's still deep green and rotten tomatoes. And again, it's sort of, see, it's a great film, as was the case with, with all of his films. And I think probably Sexy Beast, his first film, probably did, I think it's fair to say, did get decent reviews. Friday, the Grosvenor, you'll be there. I won't. You will, I told Ted you're doing it. Don't you show me up. No, I won't be there. You will, you missed the Roundtree. No, Don. Yes, Roundtree. No. Yes, Grosvenor. No, Don. Friday. I won't be there. You will. No, Don. Yes, 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 yes. I hate the kind of Kubrick cult, Stanley Kubrick cult. Mm. But, but there is a cult my, around Glazer, though, no? There is. And my, mm. my, my slightly kind of shaky conclusion here is look at Stanley Kubrick, because that's what, that's what happened to Kubrick, that obviously some of his films were highly praised and released, but plenty weren't. Barry Lyndon got iffy reviews. The Shining was absolutely slammed, was nominated for one of the first nominees at the Razzie Awards uh, when it came out. Um, they both landed with cultural, real cultural splats and went on to become celebrated classics. I think as well that... This subject, the Holocaust, as over the last few decades, produced any number of takes on it. There's always this like fear in approaching it. In that, there's that whole Theodore Adorno line about there should be no poetry after Auschwitz, whatever it was, which is overquoted and has been taken too literally. But there, there, but there's a warning in there about aestheticizing. Mm. 
Auschwitz and I think Auschwitz and the Holocaust in general. And I think one of the things that people will be fascinated with with this film is the way in which Glazer worked hard to put himself as the artist at a distance mm. from the film to the extent that he looks to try to construct a filmmaking machine that operated to a certain extent beyond his control. The film was shot with up to 10 cameras that were hidden about the house and the gardens or was operated remotely and were running all the time so that the cast could move from one room to the next without cutting between cameras. They could move into the garden without cutting between cameras. They never knew quite where they were playing to, what part of the room they were playing to. So essentially they were wandering around, working through the script and even improvising to a certain extent. But they didn't extent. know that they were being being filmed or what part Didn't of... know what part of the, okay. what they were saying would be used in the final cut. Didn't even know what cameras they were playing to. Mm. And there's an extent there, which is almost sort of saying, well, I think the word he did use in one interview was de-author the film, put himself at such a distance that no one could accuse him of aestheticizing the film because he wasn't even there. He and his, his focus pullers and camera crew were in the basement when the film was being shot. I mean, he did actually, I mean, describe it to, to I talked to the uh, one of the two star, one of the two main actors, Christian Friedel, who plays Rudolf Huss, and he said it to him, he described it as like Big Brother in, in the Auschwitz mm. house, which sounds a bit dismissive and a bit inappropriate. Because most of the filming does take place in the house, this very, very beautiful house with an even more beautiful garden with this Huss family and mm. their five children. We, we're aware that over the wall, there is the concentration camp. We're aware of that because we see very tall buildings, we see a watchtower, we see chimneys, smoke billowing out of them. The family, the Huss family, do leave the house sometimes, but it's for a very bucolic sort of experience. I mean, I want to give spoilers. I don't think you can give spoilers for a film. It's not a plot-driven film. But, but I mean, you have that really creepy and uneasy moment when they're in the river and there's something in the river that they don't like and we assume it's human remains that are being washed down and spoiling there, as you say, their bucolic trip to the country. You don't like see that. victims. No, there's and one... And that's the crucial thing There's this one movie, shot it? inside the camp or appears to be inside the camp, head and shoulders from below of Christian Friedel and we hear a degree of chaos going on around him and that's, I think, the only shot that's within the camp. What we can't see what he's looking at and what's causing the chaos all around him. And the... the Back to the sound again. It's fascinating how how the film is edited and how the sound design is edited adds to that suggestion that there is a chilling matter-of-factness to the horrors that are happening in that it will sort of cut after a gunshot, before the gunshot has time to play out, before the time has time to register with us, as if, like, that doesn't matter. You know, we're not... That's not part of the story. That isn't a story in terms of what's going on over the world. That's throughout all this, an incidental horror. I think all that stuff has been thought about very, very carefully and with great, and has been delivered with great precision. Coming up, I'll continue my conversation with Donald Clark after this short break. Now, Glazer has talked about the ethics of representation. And I think if you're talking about some shocking, murderous, historical event like the Holocaust, how you present it is absolutely 
the key thing, isn't it? And filmmakers have got into trouble in the past with that. Even Spielberg, who I suppose made maybe the biggest film about the Holocaust. The party's over, Oscar. They're closing us down, sending everybody to Auschwitz. What? I don't know. As soon as I can arrange the shipments, maybe 30, 40 days, that would be fun. Well, sentimentality is one thing people are concerned about when you when you get into this business. And critics took issue with, in particular in the Spielberg film, with the reduction of individual suffering to the little girl in the red coat. I mean, that, that did seem a somewhat banal and glib way of yelling in your ear hole. You know, there, were, there were individuals involved in this. This wasn't just a great mass of people. It was, a great, it was a great mass of people. But think of the individuals, and here's one little girl who eventually ends up dead. Those sort of Spielbergian touches, I think, did bristle with people to a degree. Also, I mean, there was a feeling about films like Schindler's List that they let the audience off the hook by focusing on those who survived, by focusing on the resistance, by focusing on the heroes rather than focusing on as, as this film does, on those who are compliant with the slaughter. And there's something, there is something in that. I, mean, I, think, I think Schindler's List is a fine film in many ways, but I think there is something in those criticisms. I mean, I, I suppose more severe, the one the film got, got more hammered would be Life is Beautiful, the Roberto Benigni film, which, I mean, I think it is possible to make comedy with anything. I mean, I would, I'm kind of, you know, quite strong on that theory that, that the notion that something is a comedy does not mean it's not serious. But I think... Th- I didn't see that degree of thinking going on in Benigni's approach to, to the concentration camp and life was beautiful, and that did seem to be glib and irresponsible. We see Haas in his, you know, uniform the whole lot. He's briefed by who we assume are engineers on how he can build more efficient gas chambers, for example. Yeah. That was one scene. But Glazer doesn't need to dwell on that too much. It's, it, that's sort of nearly a matter of fact. He, he's, he's, he's doing his job. He, he's doing his job as he understands his job to be. And I suppose maybe, you know, we could talk for a long time, I think, probably how this film diverges from the Martin Amos book, because in the Martin Amos book, the camp commander does have some awareness mm. that he's doing a deeply, a profoundly wrong thing. Well, is it, isn't one of the last things you see Hurst do is throw up in the corridor... And I've seen some people again say, oh, hang on a second, he never expressed any great regret. Mm. And I think right at the very end of his life, before he was executed, I think he finally expressed something a little bit like regret. But I don't, I didn't see that, I didn't say it's recognition of regret. I, I, saw, I saw that as, you know, that, like a kind of deeply buried awareness of the atrocities he was involved in manifesting itself physically. Or, or I mean, you know, clearly, it's just someone getting sick. At the base of it, that's all it is. But I certainly did not see that as a suggestion that he felt co- he was felt conscious regret. And so, yeah, just those, things, th- those things are there. I mean, you're right. The large part of it is and has to be about the mechanics, the logistics of this. Because I think that's one of the ways that human beings distract themselves from the appalling things that they do is that they basically focus their attention elsewhere. Mm. Well, and, the elsewhere that his wife, Hedwig, mm. she's presented as this perfect Aryan mother, you know, five children, beautiful. she's always beautifully presented in this beautiful summer dress, hair tied up, meticulous. 
But one of the very, very first things we see her doing, she takes delivery of these several packages. We don't know what they are. We get the feeling that they're being delivered by one of the camp in- inmates to, mm-hmm. in a wheelbarrow to the yeah. back door of their house. She takes delivery in one of the, the bags. She opens the, the package. She throws it on the kitchen table and she opens it up and it's full of lingerie. It's full of mm. sort of obviously women's clothes. Um, and she says, you know, she, she says to her maids, take what you want. And then she takes the big package into her bed bedroom. She opens it up. She tries it on. It's the most magnificent mink coat. Mm. And she roots in the pocket. And this, I think, is such a shocking moment. There's a lipstick in it. Yeah. And then she mm-hmm. tries the lipstick at her mm. at her, her table. And of course, then she quickly wipes it off because the German mm. women were supposed to be very pure. They're supposed to not mm. wear lipstick. And that, you know. So Claire picks up on all these tiny, tiny details. But you're, n- you're in, in no doubt from then on, from that very first few minutes, she's a monster. She has done this massive trade-off in her life. She's decided not to know what's over the Mm. wall because, again, we're so conscious of the wall in this movie. Mm. She doesn't want to know what's over the Mm. wall and she's just ploughing on with this life that she has created. And it's obviously a very different life than the one she may have had because when her mother comes to visit, her mother asks after, she names this woman, she asks after her um, and her mother says, oh, I I think she's in the camp. And she says, I used to clean for her. Yes, Glazer's interesting about that, isn't he? That he that he sees them as lower middle class people having done quite well out of all this. That I mean, there's there's a social and economic advantage to them. That as, bla- as bland and as ordinary as that, that they're getting money out of it, they're getting a house with a swimming pool. And Hedwig does say that in that conversation. The big trauma is that maybe he's going to be transferred, you know, and well, the family's going to I have to uproot. You get, again, the mundaneness of it, that, that we think of people who profited from who profit from this degree of, of enslavement as ruling large, part, <laughs> ruling large parts of the country and kind of driving around the limousine and so forth. But there's also kind of a rather drab, kind of like getting kicked a few uh, rungs up the ladder mm. in the corporate bureaucracy. Before we finish, uh, can we talk about Oscars? Sure. Uh, award-winning season. This film is up for some Oscars, isn't it? It is, and I was, I mean, I th- remember having this conversation after Cannes, where saying, could that get a Best Picture nomination? And the answer, well, not an answer, as part of the answer would be, would be point out that 10, 15 years ago, it couldn't have done. I mean, it, it not it's nothing to do with subject matter, obviously, because we know Schindler's List won, you know, 30 years ago. And other films have won since. But something as avant-garde and as awkward and as angular as this would have got nowhere near the best picture race 10 or 15 years ago. What's happened is that they have the, the electorate has changed, that after a number of sort of scandals here and there, that they made the electorate younger, they made it more international, they made it more female. And that has helped films like Drive My Car, the Japanese film that got in two or three years ago, that, that would also be very unlikely to say that. But this is the most avant-garde film that has got into the Oscars and it's close to 100-year history. The best, the best picture. I mean, you saw things like Bergman's Cries and Whispers got a Best Picture nomination, I think, would be one example, but nothing really as, as avant-garde and sometimes plain abstract as this has got into the Best Picture race in the 97 years it's been held. And what are the chances, do you think, of it taking home a statuette of any type? It's not going to win Best Picture. I mean, I mean, I, I, things haven't changed that much. It's just, it is, it is, it is too awkward and avant-garde for that. But it will almost certainly win Best International Picture, which would be the first win for the UK in that race, for obvious reasons, it being a, a competition that is for films not in the English language. The UK have been nominated before. They're nominated for a Welsh film about 
well, in Welsh about 25 years ago. So there'll be that. Now, the funny thing about not going to get too deep into the inside baseball politics of the Oscars is that, in a sense, that shouldn't have happened because the great losers in the best international film race, best foreign language film, as it was called until about five years ago, are the French, who you would think of as being one of the very great filmmaking nations, you know, probably comparable only to the, the Americans in terms of their of, of the history of, of the of the film industry. No offense to the Japanese, the Russians, or the Italians, you know, that if, you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're listening to any of the you. The list but, of no uh, offense is long now, exactly, but Exactly, a long list. Yeah. But, uh, and Anatomy of a Fall was the obvious one to submit, and if Anatomy of a Fall was it probably, I mean, it would have been a closest race, don't get me wrong, but Anatomy of a Fall would almost certainly have, have, have won uh, that race, and they didn't submit it, because each country can only submit one film to that race to clarify. So they submitted a, actually, a, very, a film that I thought had every chance of getting a nomination, Tran An Hung's Taste of Things, which is um, an old school French film. It's a beautifully shot film set in late late 19th century about a couple who lived their lives around fine food and dining, cooking this lots, endless shots of beautiful food being composed. A lot of butter. Very much the kind of <laughs> film that would have won this, right. this race a few years back. And it didn't even get nominations. So once again, the French are going to miss out after another <laughs> I mean, like 31 or 32 years since they last won that race. So to win that, I can't see it winning anything else. I mean, I would I would give it Best Picture myself. It's my favourite of the 10 films nominated. And it's a good list this year, I think, I would say. I would also give it Best Sound, but that's not going to happen because Oppenheimer is going to, I suspect, just cla- you know, clamour its way through all those technical nominations. So, yes, it will win. It'll win. It'll just win that one, I think. It's nominated for five. Glazer is nominated, but Glazer's not winning because Christopher Nolan's time has come. <laughs> His time has come, so Nolan's winning that. But so, but yes, I think I think it's only it's only a win there will be international. Donald Clark, thanks very much. That's it for today. For more of Donald Clark's film reviews, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by John Casey. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.